G'day friends. Uh, it's been a while since I've uh, been up here, so I thought I'd kind of introduce myself to you. We're a growing church, praise the Lord. So let me tell you a bit about myself if I don't know you. Uh, my name's Chris, I'm married to Beck. Uh, you might often see Beck up kind of music leading. Um, we've been involved here for uh, five, five years. We came from Bundura Presbyterian uh, with Aaron and the, the core team. A uh, bit of facts about me, I used to work as a maths teacher, uh, I worked as a trainee at the church for a couple of years, uh, and now I'm at Bible College and actually studying, uh, actually working a couple of days a week at the Christian Union out at La Trobe. Uh, we've got two wonderful children, Walt and Doug, so if they're like little energizer bunnies, right? So if you have figured out an off switch or how to calm them down, come and let me know. They're often kind of running around. Uh, just a bit about my faith journey that kind of relates to the talk tonight. When I first gave this talk, I got slammed. I was like, dude, you should have shared more of yourself. But talking about the holiness of God, like I feel very insignificant and kind of don't really want to talk about myself. But this relates. Uh, I grew up in a Catholic school environment and I did all the religious things. I'd go to priest for confession. I'd light the candles. I'd go to all these social justice conferences. I would chant, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom as if Jesus somehow wouldn't remember me. Uh, so zealous to do good works was I that I went to Africa and volunteered for six months after leaving high school. But having said this, I really didn't get the Christian message. I simply saw sin as rule-breaking, and that's it. Not that serious. For God to accept me, I'd just need to do a few good things and I would earn his acceptance. So as you can imagine, I was fair blown away when I heard the true gospel. But having said that, it probably took me six months to nine months to actually understand it because I didn't think I actually needed Jesus as a saviour. I was dealing with sin myself. As I've been preparing this talk, I can't help but think this passage is a gift to us. In our comfortable Western church culture, we can be blind to things, right? It's totally possible. Our passage tonight helps us focus our eyes on some of the things that we might be prone to miss. It's a bit like those freaky mirrors that you see at the circus or at the fair that make you look really fat or really wide. I'm hoping that this passage tonight will be the mirror that helps us see ourselves accurately. So with all that in mind, let me put kind of three things up front for us to mull over, three probing questions. The first one is about how we see ourselves. Are we a little bit flawed? Are we, are we a tad broken, simply need mending? Is sin something that we just need to get under control, pull our boots up and try a bit harder? Like me 10 years ago, is sin something that you can deal with in your own strength? Isaiah 6 will give us a reality check about our sin. Uh, secondly, this passage will challenge us in what we think about God. Who is God and what might it be like to stand before him? It's easy to take God for granted. It's possible to cheapen God's grace and have a small view of God. We can have our eyes so fixed on ourselves that we miss who God truly is. Isaiah 6 gives us a glimpse of God's infinite beauty, awe-inspiring beauty and even sheer terror. The third thing I want us to think about tonight is mission. We're called by God to tell everyone about him, but how do we feel about that? How do we feel about being called to go out and tell everyone how good Jesus is? Is it a burden? Are you overwhelmed by sharing your faith? 
does it even happen? Is there a sense of dreary obedience? So with those three things in mind, there are three things that we'll be thinking about from the passage tonight. Our sinfulness, understanding ourselves rightly before God, and our involvement in mission. All right, let's get stuck into the passage tonight with some historical details. Verse 1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, Uzziah had been king for 40, 52 years. How about that, I reckon? There's a fair few Canberra politicians in Canberra that wouldn't mind that stretch. Uzziah was a successful king by worldly standards. He brought peace, prosperity and security. However, not everything's going well. People are worshipping other gods. There's injustice happening frequently in the land. And God's people are rejecting him as king. But with Uzziah's death, there's a bit of panic in the air. There's reports of this growing Assyrian army in the east. This army's conquering smaller nations and working their way to Judah and Israel. The comfortable days of King Uzziah are well and truly over. They're in imminent danger. Welcome to reality. So with all that going on, Uzziah has a vision of the true king, the eternal king. Don't miss the irony here. As good as King Uzziah was, as good as long as his reign lasted, he's now dead. His kingdom has come to an end and God remains seated and ruling on his throne. Let's read Uzziah's vision. I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were the seraphim, each with six wings. With two they covered their face, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Isaiah actually sees a vision of heaven. He sees the God of the universe on his throne. We're given a glimpse of the heavenly courtroom. How cool is that? God is high and lifted up above everything else. There is a picture of God's robe filling the whole temple. That is, his glory and his magnificence so ebb and flow out that it fills the whole place. We're given a glimpse of these angelic beings called seraphims. It's the only time we see them in the Bible. For those playing at home, Bible Trivia Fact 101. Does anyone remember those Philadelphia cheese ads? Or more recently, the pure blonde uh, beer ads with the angels, nice and pretty, harmless, robed in white. Well, these angels are nothing like that. Forget that image. Here we see guardians. These angelic beings are fierce guardians of God's holiness. These seraphims have always been in God's presence worshipping him, yet they're, and they're not affected by sin. They're perfect, yet notice what they're doing with their wings. They've got six of them, two covers their eyes. They can't even bear to look at God because he's so perfect, terrifying and amazing. With two wings, they're covering their feet. It's a sign of lowliness. It's a sign of humility. They're not even worthy to leave their feet exposed before God. With their, with their two other wings, they're, they're flying around the throne constantly. These otherworldly creatures are overawed 
by God's presence. They're constantly calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is being chanted over and over again. And the central focus is on God's holiness. I mean, I think we might expect it to be about love, like love, love, love. But it's not, is it? God's holiness is emphasized. God is apart from us. God is different from us. God is distinct from us. Infinitely terrifying and perfect. These seraphim beings aren't lowly and nice. They're super powerful. Do you notice in verse 4, the sound of their voice, the whole place shakes. Their speech has an earthquake-like effect. So let's have a look at about at Isaiah and to see how and see how he responds after seeing the inner workings of heaven, after seeing the true king. Verse 5. Woe to me! I am ruined. Coming face to face with the God who created the heavens and the earth, Isaiah cries curses upon himself. He literally says, I am a dead man walking. He thinks that's it. He expects utter destruction. He's going to be wiped out, smitten, crushed, destroyed. End of story. Now, Isaiah's a prophet, right? He's one of the good guys in, in Israel and Judah. He speaks a message from God to the people. Yet, even with his impressive CV, even with his impressive resume, he expects utter destruction when he comes before God. A glimpse at God's holiness re- makes him realize he is a wretch. He goes on to say, For I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Can you picture him trembling and shaking at this point, thinking that's it, my life's over, what a way to come to an end. He cannot help but see himself rightly as somebody who has a dirty mouth. You see, his lips display what's actually hidden deep within his heart. That's what Jesus said, isn't it? The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. He shakes his head at himself in utter shame, disgust and sadness. Isaiah also places himself within a community of people with unclean lips. Not only not only does he have the sin, but so too Israel and Judah. His partial heart cannot see himself separately and apart from the covenant people of God. Now, before we see God graciously intervening, I want to pause for a second and get us thinking about some things. I want to ask, do you get it? Does it petrify you about standing before God? Do you see your utter destruction due to your sin? Do you see that you are absolutely dirty, defiled, and can have nothing to do with a perfect and holy God apart from Christ? I reckon we can subtly think that we're nice people with an unfortunate tendency to mess up. I don't know about you, but I often and frequently have an overinflated view of myself. Friends, don't be deceived. Sin is like an inner twistedness. Our sinful hearts, our sinful lips run deeper than you could ever imagine. We have warped minds. We're crooked people. We're we're just dodgy. We're arrogant, self-centered, you name it. 
We always think that we know best. Our hearts will chase after anything, won't they, before God himself. We'll love created things rather than the creator. And our lives just don't match up, even as Christians. This sinfulness stains us and we stand condemned before God. Our sin and our guilt need to be dealt with. And we, in our own strength, have no way of dealing with that. It is essential that we know the utter difference between a perfect, holy and righteous king and us, people who are dirty and defiled. Now, I'm I'm hammering this. I'm aware of that. But I I think this passage kind of moves us to kind of see ourselves rightly. So we will get onto God's grace in a moment. But I think there's three kind of sinful mistakes that we can fall into. Three ways that we're prone to be deluded. Here they are. Firstly, it's easy to take the grace of God in vain if we don't have a clear view of our sin in light of God's perfection. We downplay our sin. We have a shallow relationship with God. We don't really depend on him all that much because we don't need him. This leads us to think way too highly of ourselves and we think that God owes us. We think we deserve God's love. Let me say clearly, you have no rights before an utterly holy God. Our sin is far more serious than we're led to believe. Uh, Secondly, it's also possible to downplay God and to try and say, God will accept anyone. Sin's not a problem, Chris. Don't stress, man. It'll be right. God will just sweep it under the carpet. Forget about it. But beware, friends, this is creating your own God which is just a figment of your imagination. Every generation has uh, difficult things to accept about the gospel, and judgment is a hard one now. We've got to work at articulating ourselves well and actually doing the hard questions about how we feel about judgment. But if we're changing God, a God we create will in no way be as good and as gracious as the God whom we meet in the gospel. Uh, Thirdly, it's also possible to be blatantly disobedient if we don't understand how holy God is. We treat God as if he's uninvolved, as if he's uninterested in the world. I can do whatever I want and get away with it. I don't have the power to change. I can keep sinning. I'm powerless to stop. But this is the thing, right? God sees everything. God knows our hearts and he has a perfect standard. It does matter how we live, and we will one day have to stand before the king in his presence and give an account to the one who made us. So can I encourage us to watch out for these three errors that we might fall into? Downplaying sin, rejecting the judgment of God, and embracing a sinful lifestyle. Alrighty then, let's get on to the positive note. It's funny, you can actually read the congregation as you're preaching and it's just kind of a heavy couple pages and I'm aware of that. So let's get into looking and fixing our eyes on God's grace. Let's look at verse 6 now where Isaiah experiences God's grace personally. Then, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, This has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Hosea stands as one who is accused and who is guilty with unclean lips. He's going to be wiped out unless God intervenes. 
God sends one of these angelic beings to Isaiah, a hot coal from the altar. It touches his lips. And through this unfamiliar and even odd event, Isaiah's guilt is taken away. This is an unusual method of cleansing, but this symbolic action atones for his sins. There's a Christianese word, atone. Let's look at what that means. Pretty much, simply, atone means to deal with and to pay, pay for somebody's sins. To deal with somebody's sins and to pay for somebody's sins. God provides an instant way for Isaiah's sins to be wiped away. He is purified and receives forgiveness. You see, God is in the business of atoning, that is, dealing with our sins. Not just for Isaiah, but God in his grace deals with the sins of the whole world. Now at this point, there's heaps of ways I could show you this from the Bible. We could speed up to Isaiah 53 to look at the predicted suffering servant who will deal with the problem of sin. We could look at Paul's teaching on justification in Romans or Galatians. That would be a good thing to do in this Reformation 500 year. Or really, we could pick any New Testament book. Uh, But to help us see God's grace and, and to help us see God's glory, I've kind of chosen John's gospel to run with. Isaiah sees God's glory in his vision. And as God becomes a human, we see God's glory in an even more fuller way. Let me read uh, John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word, that is Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In the incarnation, God comes into the world in the man Jesus to show us what God is like. God reveals himself, and not just to one person like Isaiah, but to everyone. As we read and see Jesus' birth, his life, his ministry, his teaching, his death and resurrection, we see how mighty and glorious God truly is. The idea of glory uh, comes up again in John 17, verse 4. This is the night before Jesus uh, is killed and he's actually praying to his father. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus' mission on earth is to deal fully and finally with the problem of sin. On the cross, Jesus is made filth so that we can be dressed in perfection. God the Father displays his judgment on the cross. Sin is taken seriously. Jesus dies the death that you and I deserve. Yet God the Father also shows his grace. We get the best gift of all time, forgiveness and a right standing before God. Empowered by the Spirit, the Son glorifies the Father by finishing the work by dying the perfect death. Likewise, the Father glorifies the Son by raising him victoriously through the power of the Spirit. Jesus is shown as the true king in his victory over sin and death. Let me try and illustrate this with an idea, uh, a story that hopefully will clearly show justice and mercy both being met at the same time. I totally flogged off Aaron, who I'm assuming flogged it off Bishop Keller. 
Okay, that was a joke, by the way. Don't ever make Presbyterian memes. Okay. Anyway, let's get into it. Let's pretend you're up at Preston South Safeway. Maybe you're a bit hungry. You've gone to the bakery up there for a Vietnamese pork roll. It's wonderful. And you've backed your car, your, your bomb, your VT Commodore. You've just smashed mine. Let's pretend that I'm in the money and I'm driving a BMW. It's not a small scratch. You've caused tens of thousands worth of dollars worth of damage. To make matters worse, you didn't renew your car insurance. You've got a cost to bear, right? And things are hard for you. You've lost your job, you've got no income, literally you've got no way of paying me. And I decide, top bloke that I am, to, to show you grace and mercy. And I, I forgive you. Don't worry about it. I'll bear the cost. You don't have to pay. But in, in showing this grace, it actually costs me dearly, doesn't it? This is similar to, to us and God. Our debt of sin is so great that we could never pay for it ourselves. God intervenes and pays for it, pays for it for us. Jesus takes the punishment that we deserve. But this costs the Father dearly, doesn't it? He loses his one and only Son. But through this, God shows his grace. We're welcomed into his family as dearly loved sons and daughters. Uh, let's now look uh, once more at Jesus' prayer in John 17, the night before he died. This time we're down in verse 24. Jesus is praying for future believers in the church. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me before you loved me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. God is a God who wants to share his glory and have a people of his own. The glorious gospel story shows us how we, a people of unclean lips, who are filthy, can be washed clean and made anew. But, 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 this is only good news for us if we see ourselves rightly. As people who are beggars that are in desperate need. As somebody that is so flawed that Jesus had to die for you. So I want to ask again, do you get it? A lot of people do the religious thing, go to church, tick. Go to a gospel community, tick. Serve on a roster, tick. Give to the poor, tick. But have you come to Jesus to receive life? Do you look at the cross and see its beauty and majesty displayed in Jesus' sacrifice? Does it melt your heart? Do you see yourself rightly in front of God and flee to the cross and cling to Jesus as your only hope? There's a line coming up in a song we're going to sing a bit later that neatly summarizes this. And I won't sing it because that would not be edifying. This is what it says. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. When you get it, that through Jesus you can stand before the Lord Almighty, the King of the universe, as innocent and dearly loved, clean. Nothing else in creation can compare or satisfy. Nothing is as sweet as this. It will completely change everything. It will rock your world. It will just revolutionize your worldview. It's the circuit breaker. It's the circuit breaker for us. Jesus' love transforms our hearts. 
other loves we have no longer carry the same pull or the same enticement as we have found something infinitely better. When we see the glory of Christ, it's a light bulb moment. The light goes on. Our hearts are recaptured for God. All of a sudden, we're willing to give God our complete love, trust and sacrifice instead of holding it on to ourselves, instead of directing it at ourselves. It changes our whole life trajectory. Seeing God's grace helped Isaiah see mission rightly. So let's move on to the final point for tonight. Isaiah has seen himself rightly before God and he has had his sin atoned for. Let's see what happens next in verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah jumps in, Here I am, send me. So grateful, so thankful is Isaiah that he takes the initiative to go and tell people about God and all that he has done. He overhears a conversation in the heavenly courtroom and his eagerness is like that primary school kid when you're playing sport. Pick me, pick me, pick me. I mean, how can he not go? He's seen the Lord Almighty in all his glory and he's experienced the grace of God by having his sins dealt with. The only response is for him to go. This experience caused Isaiah to understand God's purposes for his life in a new way. Uh, My take is that this chapter in chapter 6 is Isaiah's call to ministry. In a lot of the other prophets, uh, they're called right at, the, uh, right at the beginning of the book, like chapter 1. But I think uh, Isaiah, as he put the book together, deliberately has wedged it between chapters 1 and 5 and 7 and 12. It's the kind of, it actually helps Isaiah see God rightly and it helps him see mission rightly. Now this grace is the driving force behind his ministry. Isaiah is able to handle this tough gig as he rightly sees himself before God. The challenging task is also seen in verses 9 and 10, which surely must have been devastating for Isaiah to hear. Let me read them. God said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull. And close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. God has been patient with his people time and time again over hundreds of years, but their willful rebellion has brought judgment upon them. The natural question Isaiah asks is, how long? How long will this hardening go on for? In verse 11. Well, it's going to be until the whole land is absolutely smashed, cities will lie ruined, houses deserted, and fields will be empty. There's only a tenth of the people who will remain. But there remains a glimpse of hope, a small ray of light. Did you notice that in verse 13? I was looking at my brother's Bible up the front here, and I noticed this was kind of in highlighted. It says, after the trees have been cut down, from their stumps there will grow a holy seed. Although judgment is coming, there will still be a faithful few that continue on. So from all this, I want to say is that when you've got it, when you've truly got it, you cannot help but be sent. 
Isaiah is a picture of the transformed man or the transformed woman of God going out in service of him. And the thing is, right, Isaiah saw the glory of God and his sins were atoned for a one-off way, in a one-off way. But that's only a shadow of what God does on the cross, where our sins are dealt with past, present and future. How much more of God's glory do we see? Isaiah sees mission rightly, and we need to see mission rightly too. As we share about Jesus' death, it needn't be a burden or a hassle, but a privilege. The overflow of the love that Jesus has had for us. So we want others to share in that love. Of course we want our friends, our neighbours, our work colleagues, our mother's groups to stand before God as innocent and forgiven. To have them see God's glory. So can I ask, is this how you view mission? Or is it an inconvenience and something that evokes guilt? God doesn't have a plan B for evangelism and mission. We are his plan A in spreading the gospel. He uses us, his church, to extend his kingdom. People who have gotten it, people who have had their deepest needs dealt with, cannot help but be sent out on mission. Seeing ourselves rightly before God and seeing God's grace changes everything. Having said this, I also want to say is don't expect it to be easy. Like Isaiah, we need to know that proclaiming Jesus will be a hard slog. Hearts are hard. People are bound in darkness. A message might even bring the hardening of some. It's a hard work and it's devastating at times. So we need to say our prayers and ask God to open hearts to the gospel and get on with sharing the awesome hope that we have. I mean, what else can we do? Having seen ourselves rightly before God, seeing God's glory and grace in the cross, we cannot help but be sent. Let me finish off with a quote about proclaiming God's word. If we accurately understand our sin, we will humbly proclaim God's word. If we accurately understand Christ's love, we will boldly proclaim God's word, even in the face of rejection, trusting that God will save some. How about I pray for us, friends? Father God, Please do help us see ourselves rightly in front of you as people in need, people of unclean lips and unclean hearts. Thank you for your grace to us, that Jesus would willingly lay down his life for us so that we can experience your glory and stand before you as innocent and accepted. Empower us, I pray, through your spirit to to share Jesus with joy. Strengthen us for this pivotal task, especially when it's tough. And please, graciously, Heavenly Father, please have mercy on our families, our friends, our our mothers that we know in our community, the dads that we know in our community, our neighbours and our work colleagues. May they see your unending grace. In the name of the Father and of the Son 
of the Holy Spirit. Amen.